uh, we're going to continue in, in Luke uh, chapter 6 tonight. And uh, uh, I will go ahead and say on the front end, I, I think that what, uh, what is in this chapter, what Jesus is teaching in this place in Scripture is the most difficult thing to really embody and believe, to not just kind of hear it and say yes to it, but to really take it in. And, and it's one of those places where um, I, I've been accused of a lot of things as a, as a pastor, uh, some justified, some not. Uh, and, and there has been times when uh, there's been folks that have kind of challenged me on the idea that, I'm, that uh, I just, I talk a little bit too much about, you know, the lovey-dovey stuff, God's love and this kind of stuff. And it's, it's just not, you know, sometimes you got to balance it out with God's judgment and with all these kind of things. Now, I, I disagree with the, the separation of those things. I don't think God's judgment and God's love are two different things. Uh, they don't come from two different personalities that God has. I believe one flows from the other. And I think if you feel like the idea of God's love is a soft idea, you just haven't really considered uh, what it means. And I definitely don't think you've read Sermon on the Mount or in Luke here, the Sermon on the Plain, to listen to how Jesus begins to explain what it looks like when we love uh, because it is far from easy, it is far uh, from clean, uh, it is messy, and it is difficult, and it is hard, and tonight is one of those things. Um, you'll remember last week we talked about uh, this, the opening, the, the woes and the blessings, uh, the Sermon on the Plain, P-L-A-I-N, uh, and we talked about Jesus using this as a way of world building, Right? Uh, in the same way, any good book uh, from some land that you don't know about is going to spend plenty of time building the context, building the world, painting the backdrop upon which all the details will be painted, right? Uh, and Jesus is trying to create this context. Jesus is telling us to imagine a place, a kingdom, a world where all the things that we think are so important that are signs of blessings are not. Imagine a world where everyone who now is losing in this world, who is uh, considered to be lost or left behind, will actually find hope and healing and good news, right? This upside-down, backwards world where the first are last and the last are first. What the Scripture and what Jesus spends most of his time talking about, and he calls this the kingdom of God, the domain, what it looks like in the place where things are done the way God intends them to be done. Right, again, in the same way, if, uh, if you jumped in halfway through the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or whatever it was, and you didn't know anything about the world that had been built, it would make very little sense to you, and you wouldn't know what was happening, and you wouldn't know why people were doing what they're doing. If we lose that context, that kingdom of God, that backwards, upside-down way of operating, if we lose that context, we won't understand Jesus' teaching. You can't separate those things out from each other, Right? This is the place from which Jesus teaches everything. And ultimately, I believe the reason why you build a new world, as Jesus is doing, is so that you can tell a new story. You can tell a unique story. And I think one of the most important questions that we can be asking ourselves, and I try to ask myself all the time if I'm uh, considering myself a follower of Christ, is what is unique? What is so different about the story I'm living? What is so different about the story that we are claiming? Because I, I will go ahead and say that if, if Jesus is not telling a different story, if Jesus is not presenting anything new, then what's the point really, right? Uh, and I know plenty of people who have walked away from church because they couldn't really answer that question. They've walked away from faith because they don't really know what, what really is the point. What, is, what difference does it really make? And so it's important for us to ask ourselves, what's so different about the story we claim? Because it'll be easy for us, I think, to not 
uh, to just fall back into the narrative that we always have, right? And I think as often as not, we forget that the entire world that Jesus creates is new. It is different. I was trying to think about like how to maybe paint that picture and, and illustrate that a little bit. And I'm not sure this is going to work, but, but bear with me. And maybe, maybe this will make sense a little bit of what I'm trying to get at here. And, and maybe you grew up this way, but when I grew up, the way we talked about God and Jesus and what Jesus was doing in, in us and in this world, we talked about Jesus as... Uh, the best available option as kind of the strongest and truest of the choices, like, like the biggest and best of the gods, if you will, right? There is this kind of competition for the world, uh, and you can choose all these different teams, but you want to be on team Jesus because Jesus is going to win, right? Uh, we didn't, that's kind of a weird way of saying it, but we didn't talk about those exact terms, but that's functionally what we talked about, right? It was almost like, um, you remember Mad Lib's which is where there's like a story and there's just blanks and it'll be like adjective, noun, whatever, and then you just fill it in and you kind of create uh, new details to what the story that's already kind of established. It essentially worked like a spiritual Mad Libs, right? Where we just write in the name Jesus for the deity of choice line, but the story was functionally already established. It was functionally the same story with a different choice of names in the blank. Do I believe that... Baal will show up and vanquish his enemies and rule forever in the world? No, I don't believe in that. Do I believe Marduk will? No. Allah? No. Thor? No, I don't believe anything of the sort. I believe Jesus will show up and vanquish his enemies and rule forever. And that's what makes me Christian. Amen and amen, right? And that's, and I get it. And some of you right now are going, well, yeah, that is kind of the story, right? That is a story we were always brought up with. I would argue that while you are putting a different name in it, that is the same story. Same story that most of us tell and most, uh, most cultures have told, right? Other than the name, the plot is the same. Uh, in, in religious or, or theological circles, the story that you can just switch names out within uh, has, has a name that people have used. I like, the, I like this, this term. And that the name of that story is the myth of redemptive violence is, is what they say. The myth of redemptive violence. And it basically works like this. There are good guys and there are bad guys. The good guys suffer at the hands of the bad guys, but the good guys rise up. They fight back. They overpower the bad guys. They win. Everyone is redeemed by the stronger good guys, by the hero taking out the enemy. The world is set right because the righteous people now are in charge. They now hold the throne. They now hold the sword. They make the rules. Find the world is set the way it should be. The end, right? They're redeemed by the overthrow, by the violence, if you will. And you'll recognize this from almost every single movie you've ever seen, most of the books you've read, most of the religious teachings you've heard. It's ubiquitous, right? You will recognize the myth of redemptive violence from politics. Uh, you will recognize it from professional wrestling. And I know that's a bit redundant nowadays to call politics and professional wrestling two different things, but I think you know what I'm saying. This is the story. This is the story we as humans have always told and always believed. And it leads to certain questions, right? So if we believe this story, then we ask things like, well, who are the bad guys? And I, I can tell you what the answer is always going to be. Always. Never heard another answer from this. Who are the bad guys? They are. It's never us. 
I've never heard someone who believed in the myth of redemptive violence and considered themselves the bad guys. It just never happens, right? Who are the bad guys? They are. It's never us, right? The Taliban believed they were the good guys when they flew planes into the building, right? Nazi soldiers thought they were the good guys as they did what they did. Slave owners thought they were the good guys. We here tonight think we are the good guys in this myth. In this story, we always inhabit that place. Is it wrong for those people, the enemy, to treat us so poorly? Yes, of course it is, right? Is it righteous for us to do back to them what they have done to us and maybe in a bigger and better and stronger way? Of course it's justified. Yes, it is. Okay, everyone got the story? Places, lights, camera, action, and the same story gets played over and over again with a thousand different actors playing every different part but always ending up in the same place. It's the myth of redemptive violence. You can change the names, but the story is the same. And you know this story. And on some level, you love this story. We all love this story. I, I love every ridiculously stupid, violent movie that I sh- don't want my kids to watch and I don't believe and I have moral and ethical problems with, and I love to watch them. And they're all the story of redemptive violence, right? One person who somehow can't get shot by the 500 people with machine guns and he takes them all out. Yes, this passes the time on a treadmill. I love it. You know this story. On some level, you love this story. Most days, we believe in this story. But it seems to me that there is at least one major problem with the myth of redemptive violence that we love so much for us as Christians. And that is this. This story is one that where Jesus categorically does not fit. There is no place, no role for Jesus to play in this story. And not only does it not fit, if we're honest, it's a story that doesn't need Jesus at all. And if we really look at the way, what Jesus said and taught, how he lived, we look at the cross, we look at all these things, this is a story that is very literally anti-Christ. Right? Hence, after this world building that he does last week, Jesus begins to tell this better story. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. But to you who are listening, to you who are ready for a better story, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them also the other. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be the children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And tonight I want to tighten the focus of the lens down to this one point, because I think we could spend weeks on it. And this is supposed to be the last week we're in Luke 6, although I might just punt the whole lectionary because I, I don't know if we can leave it quite yet. 
but I can't think of a single practice more indicative of the entirety of Jesus' teaching on, the God's, king, on God's kingdom than that of love of enemy, than enemy love, right? If you ask me to sum up all of what makes Christ's teachings, life, kingdom, different, unique, what is different about this story, this is it. What better example of unconditional love could you have than love of enemy? What better snapshot of grace and forgiveness and hospitality and all the fruits of the Spirit than love of enemy? If all of God's law hangs on loving God by loving others as we have first been loved while we were still sinners, then love of enemy is literally where all of it comes to a point. It all comes together and becomes incarnate in our practice of loving those we least want to love and we feel least deserving of our love. To remove this from Christian practice is functionally to remove Christ from our religious practice. And after all, and, and Jesus makes this very point. After all, he says, what, what's so special about the other story, right? So you do to others as they have already done to you? So what? So you give to those who always give back? Well, hooray, yippee for you, right? Why would you want special credit for doing the same thing everyone has always done? That is the same as any story that leaves Christ out altogether. Even sinners do that, Jesus says, right? Christ is irrelevant to that life. Again, as we said last week, right, Jesus is not looking to be a part of the same story, a part of the same world, and just kind of have the Jesus veneer on that same story, right? Jesus is not looking to decorate the same world that has always been built. Jesus is looking to be an architect of a new story, a new world altogether. Rather, Jesus says, let's have a new story. Let's get rid of the word enemy altogether. The people who would normally be cast as enemy in your story now get treated as family, now get treated as friend. There is no enemy role to fill anymore. You, they may consider you their enemy, but you no longer return the favor. To quote uh, from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh. Again, our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And there is a mouthful there we could spend a couple weeks on. But I think it's important to realize that in Ephesians, it is not saying that there is no enemy. It is not saying that there is re not real evil or there is no fight or that we're called to passivity in any way. But it does say, if something has flesh and blood, which is like literally every person I've ever met, if something has flesh and blood, they are not the enemy. Nothing with flesh and blood is our enemy. No matter how easy it is to make another person the totem for everything that's wrong in the world, we don't do it. That's not our story. We understand that every person we meet is subject to the same powers and principalities we are, is victimized by the same powers and principalities we are, that every person we meet is equally a beloved child of God, in need of God's grace, and in need of knowing who they really are in light of God, just like we are. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily am constrained to be. They are not the enemy. They are victimized by the enemy. 
If it is flesh and blood, it's not our enemy. We are in the people business. And again, this is not passivity. And I, and I really need to set a step just for a moment and make this point. This doesn't mean we don't do nothing. And it certainly doesn't mean uh, that we allow someone to just keep abusing us. I know turn the other cheek has been used uh, against particularly a lot of times women, wives who are in bad situations. That is not at all what this is saying. If you're in an abusive relationship, leave. Uh, turn two cheeks, right? <laughs> it's a loose translation, but... <laughs> Leaving is the most loving thing you can do for yourself and for your abuser, period. There's nothing loving about letting an abuser continue what they are doing, right? Their abuse violates the image of God in you and in them. Leave. I'm not saying lay there and take it. The goal is not to leave evil unabated. The goal is to make sure we don't become the evil we're trying to get rid of. The, the key is to make sure we don't become the problem in order to solve the problem. We are trying to tell a new story. But because we often aren't open to this truly new world and this new story, the church often becomes, instead of uh, being the, uh, the place that it should be, the church becomes an enemy-making machine instead of a peacemaking family. And many of you, like me, who grew up in churches that spent a lot of their time naming the enemies. Making sure that they built the framework for us about who was to blame, why everything was going wrong in the world, who we were against, who we should get rid of, fill in the blank. And strangely enough, it was never them. It was never us. And even more strangely, after being sure of who the enemy was, after naming the enemy, we never made the effort to actually love them. which is wrong on every level. I used to work, I used to have a job where functionally, I mean, I was way down the ladder, but I was underneath a state convention for a major denomination. And this uh, state convention for the, this major denomination, while I was working for them on a college campus, um, they made a decision on the statewide level that, made a, that got a lot of press. And the decision was to get rid of a couple of churches that were associated with them because those churches began to allow people who were gay to be a part of the church. And of course, that's a big theological issue. There's people of good faith on both sides of that. I understand that. But they, it, it became a big deal. And basically, they became known as people who, who didn't like gay people, right? And I was in this statewide meeting, and all this was happening, and they were worried about the press they were getting. And the head of the whole state de denomination got up in front of uh, the handful of us in the room and said, now, if anyone from the press comes to talk to you, you need to let them know uh, that, you know, this is not a bad thing, and this is because we love people uh, who are gay. It's not because we don't like them. I mean, just because, you know, and he went into this whole thing about, you know, liberals ruining the world and all the typical enemy stuff that we all heard all the time. Went through this whole thing, right? But, but it's, we're doing this because we, we love them. And I don't, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a boat rocker by nature, but it, it just, it flew all over me. And it was one of those things where like my hand went up before I realized my hand went up. And my hand went up and they called to me and I said, I'm really glad to hear that. I'm really glad to hear that, that you're making this decision because you love these people so much. 
Um, but you have to understand what it looks like to everyone else, right? Yeah, yeah, we understand that. Okay, great. So what are you doing to show your love for these folks? If they're convinced you hate them, and we represent Jesus, and we believe Jesus loves them, and we believe what we're doing is out of love for them, we, what are you doing? What, are we, what programs are you putting in place? What outreach are you doing? What are you doing to show love to the people that you are kicking out of your church? And he turned red, and he looked me in the eye for about four seconds, and then he just turned and took another question, right? And then I raised my hand again, and then he ignored me for the rest of the time. And nothing was ever done. Because the truth is, it wasn't about love for those people. It just wasn't. Uh, I was in it, and I can tell you, that's not what it was about. It was about naming the enemy, blaming them, and getting rid of them. It had nothing to do with love. It was the same old story. It just had the Jesus paint on it, right? We are here for a new story. And I don't think we have to go very far in our history to to see what this looks like. You may remember, I mentioned this last February, and I'm sorry to be redundant, but uh, we talked about last February, we were talking about um, taking a look at and uh, admiring and remembering the witness of the black church in America and what uh, has happened in the last, decade, last few decades, particularly with the black church in America. And I really do believe, I personally believe that a white evangelical church, uh, that is my tradition, has a lot to learn from the black church tradition because there's never been a group of people in our national history more justified in creating an enemy list than the black Americans, brothers and sisters that we have, right? We all know the history. And I'm not the first to say it, it has been said that we should never stop being amazed at how incredible it is that we now have a black church instead of a black terror organization because sociologically it would have made a lot more sense to go the other direction. In fact, the biggest fear that white Christians had when they were getting rid of slavery and and some of the other uh, oppressive things they did was they were so scared that blacks would then begin to treat them the way they had treated blacks. They would mirror the violence that was shown to them. But that's not what the black church did. They believed in a better story. A story that I think a lot of times we don't believe in. Right? And, and you look at something like the civil rights uh, uh, movement. You see someone like Martin Luther King Jr. or these folks, they end up with a movement that invited white brothers and sisters to march alongside their black brothers and sisters. There was space given for reconciliation with those who were clearly and aggressively their enemies because they believed in a better story. Now you compare that to some of the stuff we have, and here's where I'm probably going to get in trouble, but you compare that to some of the stuff we have going on right now in our culture, right? Right now, We've got uh, militias, we've got some revitalization of the Klan, we've got QAnon, we've got capital rioters, almost exclusively made up of aggrieved white Christians claiming Jesus, ready to kill enemies that aren't even real. We have a lot to learn. Because I don't think Jesus really leaves room for alternative interpretations here. I'm all for having different, you know, different theology and agreeing with folks on things, I don't think there's room for another interpretation here. And if you've ever seen this in action, you know how deeply good and true it is. 
It's been a while now, so a lot of you in this room don't remember our friend Tony who was killed. Literally murdered on the front doorstep of his house next door to where his mother, Miss Jenny, whom a lot of you know, lived at the time. And I had, uh, I was one of the people that had to go in and let Miss Jenny know what had happened 20 feet from her front door. And the first thing she said was, oh, we need to pray for the other guy's mother. Her first impulse was to care for the person's mother who had just killed her son. I've never, I've never felt less Christ-like in my life because that was not my first thought. She believes in a better story. As a follower of Christ, if I believe in what Jesus tried to build, I don't get to have human enemies anymore. And have, I, I've just never known a time in my life, which is, you know, you know, only 20-something years, so not very long, but um, in my very short young life, I've just never known a time when this new story is needed more than right now. We have no human enemies anymore, only children of God who are the intended recipients of God's love and grace and forgiveness through God's children. To the extent that we do not practice this is the extent to which we are the illness and not the treatment. We are not passive. We do not lay down in front of evil and let it go unabated. This is not Pollyanna thinking. In fact, for all of the first Christians, all of the first disciples, this led to martyrdom. It's messy and it's hard. This is one of the reasons Jesus was killed. But we refused to fight with the world's weapons or live by the same old story. We proactively treat everyone as friend and family. We proactively do unto others as we hope they will do unto us. And understand, that's a new thing. There was an old rabbinic teaching that said, do not do unto others as you do not want them to do to you. Jesus made it proactive. This is, I'm, I'm aggressively, offensively gracious and loving. It is nonviolent, but it is not passive. It is a commitment to God's love as the solution. And if we don't have this, if this isn't our story, then what do we really have? What alternative world are we really building? What new story are we really telling? But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. May we be those who are listening to a better story. Let's pray. God, may we be formed, deeply and truly formed by your grace. May we know that you have love without condition, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we've worked for it, but just because we are. That you treated us as sons and daughters, even when we treated you as an enemy. 
And God, in so doing, you began to build a better world, tell a better story. May we be people of that story. May we be people of your kingdom. God, may we not give in to the myth of redemptive violence. May we not name our enemies and try to overpower them. May we not try to find salvation in being the illness instead of the cure. God, help us to believe this. Help us to practice this. Help us to embody this. Help us to offer a better story in a world that needs to hear something new. God, we love you and we ask all things in your name. Amen.